You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Ed Luce. His new book from Fantagraphics is the collectible, or collected, maybe will be collectible one day, uh, Wovable Oaf, um, the series uh, that I guess you'd done as many comics originally about a, uh, a gentle bear of a man and his uh, apartment full of cats and uh, the general queerness of his environment. Yes, as as queer as San Francisco gets, or increasingly not queer, I guess. I don't know. It, it depends on your perspective. Yeah, I was thinking about that because San Francisco is such like a rapidly, um, horribly gentrifying thing. Everything I see is just about how like everyone's ending up homeless and um, rents are remarkably uh, absurd and. Yeah, I mean, I got here in 2006 before a lot of that was in place. So in some ways, my comic was a love letter to San Francisco and me kind of feeling really embraced by the city and the comics culture. Um, You know, I had previously lived in uh, inland a little bit more in California and in New York City. And it never dawned on me to make comics in either of those places. But when I moved to San Francisco, I just met a bunch of indie comics creators and 
you know, that was back when we had like three shows, I think, here. We had <laughs> Ape and, and WonderCon and ZineFest. Um, so the vibe was very, you know, conducive to that. Um, but now it's weird. Um, I'm glad that the comic has been kind of going along and thriving because that initial inspiration is really, it's strained, you know? Yeah. Not, I don't know if I'm in love with San Francisco the way that I used to be. Um, and it's, as you said, it's because of a lot of things. I don't want to go into the bemoaning of the tech industry takeover and all of that, but for those people that are seeing it from the outside, it's, it's a real thing. You know? Yeah. I remember, the, uh, when I went to San Francisco for eight point years, the first time I'd been since I was a kid, and one of the first things we saw when we drove in was a leather bar, <laughs> and it, it seemed so kind of perfect and appropriate. Yeah, I mean, I the, I cut my teeth kind of in San Francisco right when I was conceiving of the comic, so a lot of you know that that moments queer culture and bar bar scene and and the music scene and a lot of other things kind of kind of filtered their way in, but. But yeah, I mean, I first came here in 1998, and it was that that mecca that you know a lot of people, especially from the Midwest, you know, believe it to be. And I, I mean, I think in a lot of ways it still is that that show looking on HBO. I think is going to um, inspire a whole new generation of guys and and um, women and uh, trans people to to move out here. Um, hopefully, and hopefully that will bring the like life's blood of creativity and you know, the artistic side of San Francisco back at some point. Um, but yeah, so you, you, when you were here, you kind of, that was, that was going on. That was yeah. immediately apparent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not very different from Vancouver. Um, oh. I don't know if you know much about our West End, I've but I've never been, I've never been to Vancouver actually. Uh, it's, it's, it's got a, it's got a, it's, it's bear bar and uh, there, there's a fair amount of activity down there. We were pretty lively for a long time. Our, uh, only parade in the city was the pride parade oh wow wow so like families would be coming in from the suburbs with their kids while there's guys in you know very small thongs uh gyrating (laughs) on floats and uh topless uh lesbian bikers and it's it's so funny you should mention that because when i when i first did get here it was it was still the wild west a little bit there was you could just walk out on the street on market and there'd be a completely naked guy walking around. You know, there was a little place where they, all of the nudists would kind of get together down in the Castro that has since all been, you know, roundly soundly stamped out of, out of the Castro. Isn't there the law there? Like you can be naked, but you can't be aroused. No, it used to be that you could be completely naked. And now I think you have to like have, some sheath or something there's a way some little like eye patch that you can wear (laughs) but uh yeah and you have to like be relatively covered up to go into um establishments now you have to be so whether that's a bookstore or a food you know place or whatever um but they kept ticketing those guys and now it's it's no longer i think they passed an ordinance of some kind and it's it's completely banned. You'll still see people that that push that boundary, and as long as you said they're not aroused, I think they can still get away with it. But mm-hmm. um, given the tone of the city and how it's changed, and I would even say the last three years, it's it's much less you know prevalent. It, it's it's like the unicorn now in the Castro. You you won't see it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. 
the unicorn, which is a very good pun there. Yes, that's, that's, we'll go to that, the well, immediately of the, the unicorn as a metaphor. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that's where I did see it. That was the, the, the young man working uh, in the Castro. And that was uh, like, oh, okay, that's <laughs> happening. Um, but let's talk about your comics. Uh, we, 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 we could, I guess it kind of goes with the comics. I mean, it does go with the comics completely. Uh, but I'm curious more, um, kind of leading up to the comics... Because uh, I haven't read what you've done before mm-hmm. Wovable Oaf. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Wovable Oaf in itself, I love saying it. Can I, I'll just keep <laughs> saying it. Um, it. Seems pretty fully formed and fleshed out uh, for the beginning. And so I'm just curious um, what you're doing before and maybe like kind of what your background was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, going way back, um, I've always bought comics, you know, since my very early teens. I started seriously collecting them in the, the very early 90s. Uh, I wanted to be a comic creator, uh, but going to college for art school, it, there, uh, you know, at that point there was nothing, there was no uh, major that supported comics. It was illustration. So when I got there, all of that immediately kind of got beaten out of me by my professors. And I said, well, the closest thing that I could do is be an illustration you know, major. And, that's kind of a hybrid of fine arts and, and uh, more graphic design type stuff. So I pursued that for years. I went to grad school um, to UC San Diego, and that pushed me in a completely other direction uh, as far as getting uh, my master's in not just uh, drawing, but painting, installation, and performance, actually. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, UC San Diego is a great art program. They really push you to realize your ideas kind of in, you know, a multitude of mediums, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, uh, I went and actually became an art professor in upstate New York at, at a small school um, called Alfred University, and another very heavily interdisciplinary school, mainly known for its ceramics program. Um, but yet again, um, I started to actually beat out the comics from my students' sketchbook, saying, stop drawing comics, draw this lovely still life that I have put together for you in the <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, never the twain shall meet. Uh, I just was a teacher for, for a couple of years, um, moved to New York, uh, New York city in Manhattan, became a faux finisher, uh, still buying comics this whole time. Um, but it wasn't until I moved back to California and into San Francisco and into a tiny, um, studio apartment that I didn't have room to paint anymore. I didn't have room to draw anymore. And as I had said before, I became kind of in tune with this, really vibrant indie comic scene that, that still exists, you know, to, the, to this day. Um, but uh, I started going to Ape, the Alternative Press Expo. And um, my artwork up until that point was pretty cartoony to begin with. I was really influenced by pop art. Um, so it just seemed like a natural thing to make that leap into the comics world um, and start, you know, trying to construct narratives. I mean, I was familiar with visual narratives from reading comics the learning curve was really kind of smooth for me um, on that front. But to actually kind of tell a story and to draw the same characters over and over again and make them look the same was was a bit of a challenge for me. So, um, yeah, I mean, my entry into comics, I, I kind of came in at a different angle, I think, than a lot of people do. Uh, I didn't, you know, in my early 20s decide that, that that was what I wanted to make my life, you know, about and I always admire, you know, especially young people that I meet at these conventions that are so they're so possessed and passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, then I'm 39. I know a bunch of people that are around my age that have been doing it for, 
you know, much longer. So I feel like all of these things kind of coalesced when I decided I wanted to do a book and I had to catch up really quick and make a lot of work really quickly. Um, so yeah, my skill set and my technical abilities were very helpful to that end, but um, writing was a, was a tricky thing. Um, so I kind of pulled from an auto bio place moving to San Francisco and that's where the character and the storylines kind of formed. I call it exaggerated auto bio, um, because it is largely drawn from my experience, but I don't look like that guy. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I had to, to kind of, you know, create a a character to form all of this around. So do you have cats? I do. You may have just heard my cat cry (laughs) in the background. (laughs) I said, feed her to my partner, give her some treats before I start this podcast, because otherwise she's just going to start crying everywhere. Um, But yeah, uh, when I moved to San Francisco, I had ended a long-term relationship, and I missed my cats. You know, we had two, and I decided to leave one with him, because I didn't want to break them up, too. So uh, they were very much on my mind when I I started the comic, and they they kind of fit in that way. Um, They're also fun to play off of this big, huge, hairy guy. You know, um, they the, their cuteness kind of plays off of his scariness in a, a fun way. His scary cuteness. Yes, yes. He actually looks scarier to me, I think, than most people think he is. I mean, that was the, the, the place that he came from, was I was trying to make this really ugly, gnarly-looking guy who, once you started, um, you know, looking at, at into his life, you know, in terms of the story, you would realize that he was actually a total softie. He loves the Smiths. You know, he has all these cats. Um, He kind of talks a little bit like a baby, even though he's a huge guy. So, um, yeah, it's it's like he's a study in contrast, I would say, definitely. So the character kind of is taken from pieces of your life. So it's like the wrestling was something you were into when you were a kid and just kind of amalgamating it all together. Exactly. It's kind of a platform for me to explore and talk about all these things that I... You know, I enjoy rather than kind of doing a comic specifically about wrestling or a comic about heavy metal or, you know, queer culture or something like that. I just sort of took a almost Simpsons approach to it and said, let this be a universe that all of these things can, can fit into. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, that's where my kind of I say it's exaggerated autobio. A lot of the tastes of my personal tastes are the tastes of the characters. Um, so when it came to, you know, figuring out how I was going to incorporate wrestling, well, let me give him a backstory. Where did he, you know, get all this huge house and all these cats from? He was a former pro wrestler. I'm about to retire, uh, due to some sort of scandal. Um, so that the, these plot points kind of naturally evolved out of my interest points, you know, the things that I, I wanted to, um, do comics about. Uh, so anytime something that I'm, I'm excited about, uh, whether it's food or fashion or, you know, um, the music scene in San Francisco, um, I find a way to, to weave that into the large cast of characters or I create new ones. So, um, it is, it's in some ways I think I get, um, compared to love and rockets for that reason. And certainly Scott Pilgrim. Um, and as I said, I, I definitely think of the Simpsons sometimes and, and huge cast of characters that, once you get tired of some of the main cast, you can kind of go off and, and uh, approach these other characters and live in their world for a little while. Mm-hmm. You have like 40 pages of character bios. Yes. In the back of the book, I was like, what? It just keeps going. Going. Yeah. That really speaks to my um, 
my interest primarily up until I started making my own indie comic in Marvel and DC comics. That is my big influence. Um, so that's your, my, like, your who's who in your Marvel universe. Yeah. It's my dirty secret in some ways because uh, I, to this day, people will throw out this kind of classic indie comic and this one and this one. Have you read this? Oh, you have to know this. And I'll just be like, oh, I was reading the X-Men, <laughs> you know, when that came out. So what was talking, like bad X-Men um, when that book, you know, hit its stride and, and became really popular. Um, so that is really where I come from. It's so, so funny. like that storyline where like they go to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, that is my, my go-to gold standard. I hate to say it for the X-Men. I love that team, that team. Um, and I got super excited when I, uh, read Scott Pilgrim and Brian Lee O'Malley put all those references in there to that era. Um, they're subtle, but they're in there. Um, I love that team. They're like the punk rock X-Men team. Um, so, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I cut you off as you are about to say something before then. Oops. Um, I, I was saying I cut you off when you were about to say something, but I, I don't know where we're going. Um... <laughs> <laughs> you with me i'm a i'm a professor i tend to like go off on long tangents and i lose people all the time so <laughs> that's okay <laughs> oh we were talking about uh, i was gonna say it's funny that you should um you should bring up the handbook stuff um because eric reynolds was really into uh the editor for the oath book me including all of that he was like yeah i really like the the profiles we should definitely put them all in there. So that's that's the main reason why those got included in the back. Also, too, I work really relatively slowly, so I had all these storylines and histories for these characters, and I, I, you know they're not playing out in the main storyline of the the individual issues. So that is a way for me to kind of catch readers up on where these people all came from, basically. Did Eric realize it was a callback to Who's Who and Marvel Universe Handbook? I think so. I mean, I totally jacked the format, you know, and the, they each have kind of like pseudo superpowers and, you know, their heights and their hair and, you know, all that stuff is in there. So it would be hard to, to miss as, as a direct reference. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think everybody started out, uh, even indie comics folks, somewhere their, their gateway was a Marvel or a DC comic. So, um, yeah. Mine was the uh, 90s uh, Norm Brayfogle uh, Batman run. Nice. Yeah, I totally bought that. Um, but, uh, yeah, my, my real uh, entry point into it was in middle school, all the guys started to get interested in girls, so they stopped buying toys. And I, you know, wasn't interested in girls. <laughs> Too old to buy toys. I switched to comics. So um, And that was still socially acceptable at that point. So, um, yeah, I kind of delayed my... my maturation i guess you could say my puberty um a little bit longer by by picking up comics instead but yeah they were all whatever i could get at kmart at first um before i started to beg my parents to drive me to the actual proper comic book store so i saw your thing about uh the uh the wolfable oaf book being in walmart which is kind of amazing or at least you could order it through their website yeah yeah uh, I've heard, too, somebody said, you know, you can get the Henry Glenn book from there, which is far more non-Walmart, I would say, <laughs> than my book in some ways. Um, but, yeah, that kind of blows my mind. Um, it makes me feel 
ever so slightly more legitimate, I guess. <laughs> well, as awful a, as that sounds. It's a pretty fancy hardcover. Like, the photos I've seen, I haven't gotten a copy yet. Um, but, like, it has, is it in slipcase? Uh, there's a special edition. This is why I, I'm so glad Fanographics um, approached me and... Uh, they they've gotten me for years. Um, I first you know became aware of of the folks that are working there. I bought Fanographics since you know Isagi Yojimbo back in the '90s. Um, but they uh, folks from Fanographics started coming by my booth and picking up my special edition stuff. Um, I would have a regular edition of the comic that was you know four bucks, and then a twenty dollar edition that had like scratch and sniff cards or a record with music from the band in the comic and all that stuff. Um, and uh, they they were really into that that aspect of it. So when we did uh, finally you know decide to publish Rumble Oath, uh, Mike Bear from um, Fanographics said, "Let's do a special edition." And I was like, "I love you guys. You guys totally get me." Um, so the the version you're uh, you're referring to is a slipcase that has an actually uh, flocked furry dust jacket to the main book, the, the mass-produced <laughs> book. So, yeah, you pull it out of the slipcase, which has uh, all of the covers from the individual comics that are included in the, the, the art of the book itself. Um, and then, yeah, you take it off, and it has, like, foil nipples and a foil cat's eye. Uh, and then the rest of it, front and back, is, is the main character's body hair. And you just can run your hands over it, and it's really deluxe. So, yeah. <laughs> They must have had a lot of fun doing that. It was Mike. It was all Mike. Um, as I said, you know, he'd been a fan of that, the stuff that I had done on my own. So he approached me with it, and I was like, let's do it. What do you need? Let's make it happen. <laughs> so how many copies of that edition are going to be? I don't I, I don't necessarily quote me on this. I think there's 200. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so... And those, I think, will start to be available at Emerald City. Uh, they're making it convention exclusive from Fanographics. I will be offering it. Here, here's my first plug. Uh, I'll be offering it on, on my website, um, as soon as I can get my hands on those. But, but yeah, it's kind of a, a convention exclusive thing and, and kind of a rare thing. And, and really a thank you to all of the people that have supported me up until this point. So. It seems like you've had really good presence through the years of doing the the comics like a lot of folks have really spoken highly of what you've been doing you've been able to kind of really capture something unique with it um i don't know if i have a question coming from that (laughs) (laughs) sure well i mean i as i said earlier i think part of that was i came to comics really much later than i would say people typically do i was in my mid-30s already and i just felt like going to shows i had a lot to prove um as i started meeting people they really inspired me you know especially people that were my age that had been doing it for a decade plus already so i was just like i gotta i gotta cut my teeth i gotta you know i got something to prove in some ways this was a personal thing more than anything nobody was you know pressuring me or anything like that but um i i just sort of started to put out the single issues that were mass produced um you know runs of a couple thousand uh, locally that was incredibly expensive anybody that's ever made comics knows that's a huge financial commitment um and it just i started to feel a little bogged down by that process so um very early on i taught myself how to using a large format printer um, make mini comics, make yeah. 
full-sized, you know, modern comics-sized, but much shorter, um, isolated stories. And some of them were flip books, like one half would have one story, and then the other half would have another, you know, 12 pages, 16 pages. Um, and those would come out in between the numbered, you know, professionally printed issues. Um, and they were hugely popular, but I could only put out so many, you know, at a time. Um, and they were a little bit more expensive. They were definitely more part of the zine market. So um, rapidly, I accumulated a lot of material, and it looked like <laughs> I had a lot more going on, or I had been around a lot longer than I actually had, um, because I would show up at these shows with, like, 15 books, you know. <laughs> um, little did most people know that, you know, half of them were 12 to 16 pages long. Um, but, uh, that, and I think my desire to do the special edition stuff kind of quickly, um, people saw that I was thinking outside the box and, um, you know, that drew more attention to what I was doing, I think, um, than, you know, maybe someone that had been around longer, let's say. Um, and I really, I attribute that to my, my, uh, grad school experience and my interdisciplinary experience. Um, what does this comic smell like? You know, what does this comic sound like? Yeah. Um, it allowed me to break into outside of the two-dimensional plane and kind of... Where do you see the hand going on this? Yeah. What's up? <laughs> Where did you see the hand creating this? And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I just, uh, I, I was lucky enough to have a lot of wonderful collaborators, you know, musicians and, and uh, a screen printer that was willing to put glow-in-the-dark ink on one of my comic covers and things like that, so... Um, yeah, I mean, when you're, I don't have any kind of web comics presence whatsoever. So I, in those early years, I was really dependent on making a splash at shows, you know, whether they were the smaller ones like Ape or, uh, the Dear Departed Stumptown, um, or, you know, kind of trying to hold my own at Comic-Con, which I know a lot of indie creators hate Comic-Con. I love Comic-Con. It's brutal, but it's fun. I like coming up with things that, you know, can compete with the, with Marvel, if you can say that they can, can compete with Marvel and DC, if that's even possible. I like, you know, coming up with stuff like that. So You mentioned earlier uh, you started the book after moving to San Francisco um, and you'd been in a long-term relationship beforehand. Was part of um, the stuff behind uh, Wubble Wolf's um, initial experience is kind of a reflection of your own kind of dating in a new city, new experiences... Because that's got to be super stressful in itself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know if this is the case with a lot of guys that move to San Francisco, but you immediately get a gym membership. You immediately learn what muscle milk and weight gainers, like powder, tastes like. Um, there is kind of this pressure to fit into the scene that you perceive here. Some people don't. I, I got here and I kind of bought into it. Um, so for a couple of years, that was like, what I thought I had to do. And I did. I, I had just gotten out of like a six plus year relationship, um, newly single, um, was living with um, a guy who I really cared for and was falling in love with and kind of didn't know it um, until a year after uh, I had moved here. But during that time, I did a lot of dating and that was huge fodder for for the comic definitely in fact several of the characters are kind of based on guys that i dated and they know they know they're in there <laughs> um and they're cool with it most of them are cool with it um but uh but yeah i mean the the intensity of the dating scene and this was back before all these you know dating apps were going on it was mainly online 
Um, it was intimidating, but uh, I learned kind of a lot about myself, and, and that went into the comic, uh, definitely. Um, it, it, it Also, to the desire to create a pop music kind of version of a comic where love works out right yeah um became an early goal with wobble oaf i wanted to tell a story because i had just ended this relationship where it worked out in the end um and that changed in between the first issue and then the the last of that particular arc number four which compromises the front half of the fanographics book um i kind of cast a little doubt at the end of that story it was my um it was my uh, the graduate, my <laughs> ambiguous ending um, that will go on. You know, I, I'm going to do another arc of Wolf, but um, but yeah, I mean the complexities of of dating here and open relationships uh, are explored in the comic. Um, something I think is increasingly more you know prevalent in the in the heterosexual world, but um, my view of it is very much coming from a, a gay guy standpoint and. Um, how open relationships are just like kind of the norm here in this city. Um, my partner and I are freaks now because we're we're monogamous <laughs> and living in San Francisco. So um, you can see that undercurrent in the the, the Oaf comic as well. Uh, the Oaf is trying to you know get into a monogamous relationship, and the Eiffel character, his his object of desire, is basically completely physically involved with the band, this uh, the, the disco grindcore. Um, pseudo heavy metal band that he's a part of so um yeah it's there as i said there's a lot of influence kind of uh influences going on romantic comedy kind of influences um but uh it also hits upon a little bit the the dynamics of relationships and and romance that scott pilgrim actually hits upon so i got a lot of early comparisons to that even though i think it's just music and love that's mm-hmm. the only <laughs> Only real connection going on. Your music is a bit heavier, much heavier, much messier, um, uglier. I would say definitely, but that's that's just how I roll. Is the one mayor the you're, you're as we're talking? You're wearing a Slayer T-shirt, and yes. uh, the, the one member uh, is is featured in an issue. Yes. Um, is he gay? No. Oh He's no. Just an icon. Just the, just the fact that you brought that up. It's <laughs> one of those things where I, when I gave the book to Fanographics, I was just like, "Are you okay with this? This is kind of in there." Um, and I tried to portray him very realistically from what I had seen in interviews. I don't even know if I want to say his name. That's okay. <laughs> For fear of of. Uh, some sort of reprisal, but um, well, this isn't transcribed on the internet, so the, the yeah. vanity Google search will bring it up. Okay, I did my um, my Scooby Doo cameo with Carrie King from Slayer in one of my comics, um, and this was when uh, right when I started to get involved with the Henry and Glenn Forever stuff. Um, Tom Neely asked me to contribute to the the Henry and Glenn Forever and Ever, the the more narrative series, and I thought, what is my version of Henry and Glenn? Who would I want to like? Basic comic story around. Uh, so it was Carrie King from Slayer because he is this lovable oaf. You know, he is that type. He's just not gay. He's not, you know, gay like the oaf characters are. He's what I call a heteroaf. Um, he's straight. So um, my characters kind of pursue him in this one story and just give him a, a demo tape. And um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's interesting. Um, Ed Pisker's Hip Hop Family Tree would not have been able to have been made if he didn't include all of these musicians in it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that was Fanographics kind of 
view of it was like, well, you know, we put out this other book. Your book has, you know, this guy in it. Um, it'll be okay, hopefully. Oh, I think it'll be fine. It's pretty. Yeah, I was gonna say this is this is like gonna, this interview will be entered as evidence of the lawsuit. <laughs> it's parody. Okay, let me use this as my platform. It's pure parody. There. So you don't have any more graphic fan art that to include just to make things worse or. No, <laughs> it's what you should say that though, because as I, I as I was getting ready for this. Uh, talking today and listening to some of the, the the past interviews you had done, I'm putting together a fan art book. It's the first fan art, you know, handmade mini comic type thing. Um, and there are all these, you know, characters that I'm not queering any of them, but pre-existing characters that I put in there. Um, that kind of thing though, and you know, is a little bit more impervious to litigation. Anybody that goes to artist alley nowadays at these shows, like half of what's there is fan art, if not more. So um, but yeah, um, I think of Wolf as like an archetype. It's it's a type out there. It's like a guy who's big and kind of scary looking, um, but in the inside, his personality is kind of uh, belies that outside appearance. So um, yeah, that's how Kerry King ended up in that one comic. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've been doing other drawings like that. I saw like you'd done a drawing of Divine. Yep. Um, yep. And so as you're kind of looking at a lot of icons both gay and not gay. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, there are all these formative influences, and, and what's been so great about working on this comic is it, it, if you're really passionate about it, it, you eat, sleep, you know, and dream it. Um, it you become really immersed. Um, so I will watch any show, you know, or movie, and I'll be thinking there, that he's wobble, he's totally an ope, you know. Um, one of my favorite shows... Uh, is Trailer Park Boys? I don't know. If, oh, you're from Canada. So you of course totally I do. Know. Yeah, my yeah. brother looks like um, what's his name with the uh, permanent rum and coke. Oh, with uh, um, Julian. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. looks like my brother. I got really <laughs> excited. That's awesome. Uh, I got really excited when I saw that show because I was like, it's based around these three oaf guys, and there's cats. You know, this was totally made in a, you know, I'd never heard of it before I had started and published both for years. And then, you know, I see the show and all three of them, like Cats, Bubbles is perhaps more into them than not. But um, Ricky, to me, is a lovable oaf. You know, he's an archetype. He's a little gay. He's got his moments with Julian. There's a lot of subtext there, but um, he's big and he's brutish. Uh, and um, and their shirts. Yeah. The shirts and, and, they wear. Yeah, totally. Um and they, you know, they kind of are these brutes, but they're actually really sweet guys. So um, I get excited when I discover an oaf in a movie or a TV show. And the, yeah, the fan art I've done is really kind of, especially Divine. Divine is like a drag oaf, you know, yeah. totally. Um, totally fits into the, the dynamic. Right from uh, eating dog feces to uh, yeah. being the lovable mom off of... Uh... Uh, hairspray. Yeah, totally. She she had like an arc, you know, to her career, definitely, and um, yeah, and just sort of ugly, definitely into the ugly on the outside. But uh, if if you've ever seen any of the documentaries about Divine, you know he was like a real sweet guy. So. Um, I I have that documentary downloaded, but me and my girlfriend have yet to watch it. We've been on Netflix. It's it's fantastic. I it totally. Divine. 
Yeah, it turned my uh, my partner, Mark, who's not a big John Waters fan, like, right around. He had no idea how popular Divine actually was, so, yeah. Um, now, we were talking, before we started the interview, I was, I was asking about, about uh, the zine culture with you, because um, I, I was actually presuming you'd come more from zine background, because when I was in San Francisco last time, someone tried to bring us to a zine shop you were involved in, and I'm kind of curious about that. Yeah, um, when I first uh, moved to San Francisco uh, and started the the Oath comic project, uh, Matt Wobensmith is one of my very close friends, and uh, he actually has a history of publishing zines that stretches back into the 90s. Um, he did a zine called Outpunk, which really documented the early um, like queercore scene in San Francisco, Pansy Division, Tribe 8, um, all those really great uh, Bay Area um, punk bands and post-punk bands that were happening in the 90s. So um, he was very influential on me, introduced me to a lot of music, introduced me to, you know, a lot of San Francisco in general. Um, he had since, you know, I met him, quit doing zines, but uh, had this huge collection. And uh, he decided to, on Valencia, open uh, the Goat Blood store, the, the store that you tried to get into, um, which is only open on weekends and then only if his, his unpaid interns show up. Um, but uh, he stole the name uh, from my from Oaks uh, Wrestling uh, name. Um, his black metal wrestling moniker was Goat Blood. So there's always a little confusion about like my role in the store and you know my role in zines and and all of that. But really, having at my fingertips his massive zine collection um, and the work of early work of Johnny Ryan, of Mike Diana, of all of these folks. Um, that was definitely an early formative uh, experience. It, it, it taught me that I could bring it old school if I wanted to, and that there was an actual um, audience out there for these handmade zines and comics. Because um, prior to that point, the internet was really ruling, and web comics were really getting going. And um, his store and the popularity of it just sort of, I said to myself, I can just keep it in print if I want to. Um, so yeah, the, the handmade nature of things and not putting anything on the web really comes from, from my, I guess you could say it's a zine background. I didn't make them back in the day, but I definitely have, have been a part of the new wave of, of zine making from the last five years or so. It's funny because I think your work works, would work so well in that web context. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I mean, I've seen people who do the page, you know, update format and some people have told me you should colorize this comic and put it online um i i don't have anything against web comics i just cannot read them in that format um I, so i've never been a regular reader of them I, I mean i have a tumblr and i do pick up and casually allow you know absorb comics from there but i'm still a every wednesday kind of guy uh, my comic book store is half a block away it's isotope comics um, I love James and Kirsten, and uh, I, I am invested in keeping print comics alive. So, um, and also, I just have not had time to put things online. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's been the, the main reason that things have not been web based. I'd love to do a strip, you know, where I update a story or do you know one liner type comics, but uh, it's just a time issue. Now you're saying you uh, teach on the side as well yeah yeah i am a part of the uh initial uh comics mfa program at california college of the arts so uh 
Is that the one that Justin Hall's involved in? Yes, Justin Hall, Alec Longstreth, um, Nicole Georges. There's, yeah, there's a group of us. My main role is uh, I mentor the students during the the two semesters. It's low residency, so we only really have a semester in July, um, and it's three consecutive consecutive, uh, years. So in between that, there are two years of, of mentoring. So uh, I come in and on a bi-weekly basis, I, I meet with a grad via Skype or, or in person if they're local, and they show me their progress. And um, it's interesting because Justin, I think, is, is he, you know, is an artist in his own right, but he uh, really is a writer's writer. Um, so he kind of specializes, I, I think, in tightening their, their storylines and their narratives and giving them, making sure the characters have arcs and they're complex. I'm the one that gets really into the geeky mythology and the world building <laughs> side of it. Um, if you couldn't tell from my comic. Um, so, yeah, that and then I teach a class in the summer uh, that's just a week. It's a week-long workshop uh, building your own comics, actually formatting them, printing them, trying to do some special edition stuff with them. I go through paper choices, you know, different formats. Um, and really try and get them to up their game uh, and be self-sufficient so that they don't have to pay that huge printing yeah. bill that, you know, you'll spend a whole year, $4 a copy trying to recoup. Um, the business plan that I kind of introduced to the students is to keep the material costs really low. Yes, your labor is kind of invested in it be- because the zine market is a little more expensive than the regular mass-produced comic market. You can ask for a little bit more. So um, that and merchandising, you know, I think uh, another thing that's a little different about the way that I make and view comics is that it was, I always had planned the heart of it to be printed material or, or a book, but, um, and it's not that I wanted to Hello Kitty the crap out of the Oaf character. I think that he's a little esoteric enough for that to never happen, but, um, but I bear. always... What's that? Uh, hello, bear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I actually did do a stuffed toy. It was like a DIY, you know, sew together front and back thing a, a couple of years ago. But I do, I consume that stuff. I really am into that kind of stuff. I buy all the swag at shows that people um, hand make. So my philosophy that I try and impart to the students in the program is uh, make the things that you would buy and you'll never you know, kind of lead yourself astray with that philosophy. It won't come off as forced or gimmicky if you're legitimately making things that you would yourself buy. So. Do you have any yeah. particular favorite thing you've made? Oh, God. Actually, um, again, I'm blessed to have a, a, what I call a good crew, uh, a silk screener, you know, friends that are supportive in terms of um, giving me ideas and um, making suggestions. But uh, Eric Erspamer is a uh, Arizona-based sculptor and he just started coming to shows with these mock-ups of Oaf figures that he had made, meticulously based off of the source material. Um, and I was really excited and flattered. Um, eventually, he learned, he taught himself to um, uh, mold make, and he started mass-producing these figures. So I think the, the things that I'm most proud of that aren't the comics that have been made are my collaboration with him um, making a... Uh, in his little tiny, you know, kitty underwear of figure, like, you know, with hair all over him that we had to hand paint on. Um, and then the goat blood figure, the most recent one, um, which is beautiful. Does it have squirting blood action? 
It doesn't, but it is covered in blood, a la <laughs> Cannibal Fuckface. We totally ripped off Johnny <laughs> Ryan with that. Because I was not drawing all those hairs on for the second figure. So he's largely coated in blood, covering up his uh, his body hair. Um, but those two things I'm really, I'm really into and happy about. The music, too. We've released um, four singles um, of music based on the comic, uh, Members of a couple Bay Area bands. Uh, Needles is the main band, but it's members of uh, Limp Wrist and Talk Is Poison. They recorded three songs, you know, and a couple more, but we haven't released those, as though they were the Ejaculoid band in the comic. So very proud of those. Um, I got Author and Punisher, uh, a, a one-man um, doom sort of metal band from San Diego, and a Harasser, uh, an L.A. black metal band, to cover one of those songs and they actually flesh them out into five minute tracks, which are amazing and great. Um, the, the first early original songs, they were only like a minute long. <laughs> so they were grindcore <laughs> shouting and then they're over before you kind of know it. And they're great. And they capture the spirit of the comic perfectly. But um, these guys covered often Punisher and Harasser lent their own kind of unique personalities to the songs. So. Are there going to be any download codes with the hardcover? Uh, with the, uh, original three records I did, I had like a, a download ticket. It was like a little ticket stub that you could download stuff, but it's, it's funny you should bring that up when we were putting the Fanographics book together. I had wanted to put them all together, together as like a 12 inch and I just never got around to it. So at some point, maybe I'll, I'll make little business cards so that people can, can hear that music and hand them out at conventions. It'd be like a convention exclusive or something like that. There we go. For free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd like that. Yeah. Um, now you're doing a bunch of shows, as I mentioned, Emerald City. Unfortunately, this is going to be posted afterwards. So I hope you all were able to go to M City. I'll be there. You're going to be there. Yeah. Uh, Piscor will be there. Um, but you have some other shows coming up. Yeah. Uh, directly after that, in uh, WonderCon Anaheim, we'll be there uh, April 3rd through the 5th. I believe my table number is in small press 91. Um, that show's been really good to us. It's you know it's in a more conservative part of California, but um, the bro dudes from Venice and and vicinity are they just vibe on the oaf and they don't need any context. They're really into. <laughs> they think that they're the character, um, and they actually really respond a lot to the Henry England stuff down there because that's you know Henry England's backyard basically. So yeah. I'll be there. Um, a couple weeks later, I'll be in the line work Northwest in Portland. Um, I'm trying to think of beyond that. Basically, every show between now and Comic-Con, I'll be, I'll be going to. Um, oh, Cake. I'll be at uh, Cake in June. Uh, TCAF. Uh, I actually just this week from Twitter found out that I'm a featured guest at TCAF. I had no idea. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, along with Tagame, who I think is kind of a, a spiritual relative to the OAF. Um, trying to think of what He's else. He's a very nice man. Yeah, yeah, I haven't met him yet. He did a a, a, a drawing for me. Um, another project that I'm really proud of is is Oaf Anthology, which is a bunch of other creators that I've invited to draw my characters. So he did the roughest Oaf I've ever seen. If you if you're familiar with his work, oh yeah, you might yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll be uh, at uh, CUNY in New York City is hosting a Queers and Comics conference, so I'll be on a panel with, of all people, Alison Bechtel. So I'm really like freaked out and excited about that, um, talking about our comics work. 
Um, but yeah, uh, on my website, I'll, I'll have all of these things listed eventually. Um, but that's the immediate future. Is that exciting for yourself seeing um, these similar type guys making, or guys making similar work, um, you know, big burly dudes, um, especially with what's going on with Massive? Um, yeah, I mean, Graham and Anne are, they immediately, I can't remember which show I met them at first, but whoever the organizers were, they put us together. <laughs> they, like, figured it out. Um, so whenever we're at the same event, we're, we're typically near each other, and it's great. I mean, you kind of get a, an interesting yin and yang experience. Their, their work that they're promoting is, in a lot of ways, much more explicit. Um, my stuff is more, um, I would say, maybe R, not even hard R. It's nothing you wouldn't really see on HBO. It's a lot more implied. There's a surprisingly lack of uh, penises in uh, Werewolf Oath. Yeah, yeah. And that really speaks to my desire to kind of invite everybody into the story. It's definitely coming from a queer perspective, but um, I, I have a set of images that I call deal-breaking images that I don't always want to put into the comic. Um, so when there is a sex scene eventually in the book, it happens with the lights off, and it's all word balloons and sound effects and things like that. Um, and it's not because I'm sort of prude. Uh, the, the previous art career that I had alluded to, I did a lot of really explicit, you know, gay material. And that was great, but I realized I was only really talking to the, you know, gay men. And when I approached Wobble Boof, I was just like, I want everybody to kind of identify and be able to enjoy this on some level. So, um, yeah. Uh, but it is, it's great to, I think Tagame is really great at what he does. And I don't need to, you know, yeah. attempt to to assimilate that or copy it in some way. I I want to I want to get my own kind of um, vibe out there. So that's that's largely why there's not a lot of explicit stuff in the comic. I think there's enough in there, and I'm often surprised by what straight audiences you know are offended by the the Tagame thing. They were definitely freaked out by, but most of the other stuff in there in the the fanographics book is. Uh, People accept it. They understand it. I think it, in some ways, um, it's uh, it's like kind of revealing something about gay culture or bear culture, maybe that they didn't know about. It's kind of like a primer or a little window yeah. into that subculture. So, yeah. Maybe I'm just different than most straight folks because I had a bunch of bear friends, uh-huh. so I was already pretty familiar <laughs> with that. Yeah, I think. I, 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 again, I constantly underestimate that audience. And when I put first put the, the first Oaf issues out, I was like, nobody but fair dudes are going to be interested in this. But, um, you know, the cats, the music component, all of that interests and draws people in. Um, so to the point where when I do get heavy metal dudes coming up and buying shirts and th- that are familiar with the material, not kind of coming at it cold, I often want to ask them, like, what is your investment in this, in this perspective? Um, uh, yeah, just it's, it's kind of a social experiment in that way. Um, or maybe it's a testament to how far, you know, queer perspective, you know, media, whether it's comics or TV shows or movies has come. Um, but I do, I'm constantly underestimating the audience and what they would care about or, you know, be offended by. Have you found your own interactions with audiences being different over the last five years or so? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Stumptown in Portland was like the first show I, I did in 2009 or 2010, maybe, where 
my partner and I turned to each other at the end of it and we were like, that was interesting. Half of the people that came to our booth were, you know, what I would have on the surface thought were straight men and women. Um, so that was interesting. And, and I think that I, from that point on said to myself, I think I can do this. You know, I'm going to be me and I'm going to put certain things in here and, you know, maybe down, tone down other things, but, um, definitely including the music, as I said, and that has, you know, Smiths uh, and Slayer and the heavy metal aspects have been really welcoming and brought people in. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's been great. I mean, just the fact that Fanographics, who does have a history of, of publishing queer comics and did that great No Straight Lines book that Justin put together, mm-hmm. um, you know, the fact that they would want to take a chance and promote me um, to the degree that they had with this, you know, this hardcover book, um, I think is a testament to their belief in it being able to reach outside of, you know, an exclusively queer community. So, yeah. I, I visited there lot, almost about a year ago and Jack showed the uh, publicist there showed me the, the sticker on her laptop. It's like, it's our next book. Yeah. That's like, a lot man, of excitement. Me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but congratulations. It, it looks really nice. It seems like they put a lot of love into it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm excited for it to get into people's hands. It's, it's been a long time coming. I've, I've had to hold this copy, the only copy that I have that they sent me. Um, and just kind of, I'm treating it like sculpture. I bring it with me <laughs> everywhere and kind of, uh, at least until this weekend, I guess, um, it, it'll be theoretical. Uh, it'll, it'll actually get into people's hands this weekend. So I'm excited about that. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Ed. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, as I said, I've been a fan for a while, so it's, it was wonderful to, to get the email and, and uh, be able to join you. Well, it's, uh, it's much appreciated. I, I appreciate anyone that, that wants to listen to, uh, to me blather on with folks. Um, once again, reminder, folks, I've been talking to Ed Luce, and his book is Lovable Oaf as well. You can go to his website, lovableoaf.com. Yep. There we go. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, has the world
Snatch your money, the queen 